From 2Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, no support. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. Today's show centers around IDM patient Glenda Carter, who, in spite of being discouraged by everyone around her, followed her own path, trusted the science, and emerged victorious. Glenda's problems with obesity started when she was a teenager. She was born in 1950, so her parents' generation was all about convenience and prepackaged foods. And I grew up in the far north in northern Manitoba, and we didn't have a lot of money, so everything we ate was from the Hudson Bay store and was in a package like cheese Whiz or bologna or white bread. And my family were not hunters, so we didn't enjoy the wild meat or whatever. So I started to gain weight from eating a lot of processed food. We thought we were rich if we were eating white store-bought bread and that my mom didn't make homemade bread. And uh, we didn't want to take a fish sandwich to school because it stunk. So we thought taking peanut butter and honey was pretty ritzy. Somewhere along the way in our culture, we learned to use food to comfort ourselves. You know, whether that came from our parents and they were influenced by advertising, who knows? But we've all experienced it. Oh, you've had a bad day. Have a donut. And uh, I gained a lot of weight over the years. I... uh, Learned to eat when I was emotional, whether I was stressed or angry. And I learned to use the comfort soft white foods that I don't eat anymore. And um, I just kept gaining weight. And then when I got pregnant with my son, I bloomed up to about 220 pounds. And I'm only five foot four. So I was pretty big. Like many obese people of her generation, Glenda was told that a low-fat, calorie-restricted diet was the way to lose weight. My doctor referred me to go on an Ashlin program, and then I was referred to go on Pritikin program, and then I was referred to go on uh, all the programs back then that promoted lots of whole grains. And I was praised for eating uh, two pieces of bread for lunch with sliced tomato on and no butter, no mayo. And I was praised for having like a banana and uh, apples and all the foods that uh, I don't eat now. (laughs) I didn't know that berries were really good for you. And I lived in blueberry country, so I could have had free blueberries, but I wasn't educated about low carb or what to eat. Glenda always lost weight on these programs, but could never keep it off. To add insult to injury, the doctors blamed her. I was always shamed when I saw a doctor because I could never keep my weight down with the programs they gave me. And I probably had diet counseling, if you call it that, from a doctor since I was about 25. 
In 2003, Glenda stumbled across the Atkins diet, and she did really well. But she knew it was a different kind of diet. I had to quit my insulin and my blood pressure drugs like really fast. She could feel the changes in her body happening. But not only did she get no support, she was bullied. But I had no medical support. I was really pounced on for doing this. I was told that um, I wouldn't get follow-up. I was kicked out of a great big metabolic clinic uh, in the city that I had to travel an eight-hour trip to to go for meetings, and I put in lots of effort. But because I talked of low-carb and um, we were in group sessions, I was reprimanded that if I didn't be quiet about this, I could no longer come. Dr. Jason Fung has also noticed this trend of doctors and medical professionals bullying patients for doing low-carb. The problem is that the uh, current information that's available right now is uh, supported by so many of the doctors, the dietitians, the diabetes associations that if you try to do something um, like low carb, like just cutting out some white bread and cutting out some uh, refined foods and eating real foods, people get very upset at you. And it's not just patients who are bullied. Professor Tim Noakes was sued because he replied to a tweet from a woman who was asking what she should wean her baby on, and he said, a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. Here's Professor Noakes. You know, the beauty of having this trial, which went on for three years, and having some really good lawyers involved, was we managed to find out that this was a collusion between the Association of Dietetics of South Africa and the Health Professional Council. And what happened was we wrote a book called The Real Meal Revolution, and it clearly affected the dietitians in this. started talking about the Tim Noakes problem long before there was any issue about a tweet. And so we know that they were in collusion because we have emails going from one person to the other, from the person from ADSA to the Health Professional Council, and saying, what are we going to do about the Tim Noakes problem? And it, it turned out that the tweet was a simply a, a good excuse to let's take him out on the tweet. But the, it was never about the tweet. It was about the impact of our book, The Real Meal Revolution, on, on, their, on their profession. Hi, Richard here. I'm the other keto dude. In Australia, we have a little experience about this bullying of doctors trying to treat people with metabolic diseases using diets. Gary Fetke is a Tasmanian orthopaedic surgeon who was told by the Australian authorities that he was not allowed to talk to his patients about diet to treat their diabetes, but they were perfectly happy with bringing him in to amputate their lower extremities once the diabetes had progressed. When people come to see me with their end-stage diabetes, in their feet in particular, then they're coming along with ulcers, they're coming along with pain, they're coming along with deformity. I don't want to see them come to having an amputation and we go to great lengths to try and preserve their feet, their toes and then stop these deformities from ulcerating. If they've got uncontrolled diabetes then I'm going to fail. They're going to fail. We, can't, we cannot win. And it is a progressive decline. You come along with a start with a small ulcer and that breaks down it fails to heal you do end up with smelly feet, you do end up with smelly toes, you do end up with 
you know, meeting and having dressings every single day, long-term antibiotics, and all of those comes with an enormous cost to the individual, cost to the family, and a cost ultimately to the community. That can be turned around early on uh, with good, tight diabetes control and low-carb wins hands down. I've seen so many people get control of their diabetes and actually save their own toes just by adopting it. So it started off as a, you know, a, a complaint put in by a dietitian, and then the investigation went on for two and a half years, and then there was another complaint put in where I was uh, accused of um, uh, inappropriately, effectively reversing someone's type two diabetes. And okay, we did it on national TV, and I actually didn't do it. I just got, I mentored him, but the team of dietitians and the diabetes sure. nurse edge together, they did they did all the work. But it was inappropriately for me to claim it. Not that I ever really did claim it. I mean, I just happened to be on TV with him. And then in the same complaint, I was reported for what I was going to say at a hospital food industry meeting, a national one that I was invited to speak at. And obviously I've challenged that. And uh, APRA still won't reply to that portion of it. APRA is the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and they license health practitioners to practice in Australia. But interestingly, they have no oversight over dietitians. They regulate themselves. Even though they actually asked me for a copy of my speech before I gave it. And I said no. Um, so anyway, the, the process has gone on. Um, I've effectively put in a, uh, a thesis of information about and ultimately they came back in a really, really badly worded document. And I've had legal opinion about that as well. It's not just my opinion. Um, but uh, it's ultimately said, um, what I'm talking about might be right. And even if it's shown to be best practice, I'm not allowed to talk about it. All right, let's get back to Glenda's story. She was doing the Atkins diet. She felt great. Everyone around her was losing their minds because she gave up carbs. And then she went to a diabetologist and had a conversation that many of us, including me, have had with a medical professional. So I went and had an interview with a diabetologist there, and he was just a young new grad. This was a new position. And he said to me, my colleagues and I are watching your blood work. Whatever you're doing is awesome. Keep doing it. But we can't advise any patients to do what you're doing because it's just not founded. We don't know how you're accomplishing this. And I tried to educate him, but they eventually, they kicked me out of the metabolic clinic and I wasn't allowed to go. And so then my family doctor wasn't very happy with me for getting kicked out of the clinic. And I didn't have any support. The diabetic educator didn't want me to talk at any of the meetings. I couldn't share that I was off my insulin or what I was eating. And eventually that got to me. And because I ate for stress, I started eating carbs again. I gained back, I think I dropped 90 pounds then and I gained it all back. Plus every time I lost weight, I gained back more. And I had no support for doing anything for my program. So I followed the diabetic program from the Canadian Food Guide. And I, I have my old charts. I was 
put on 300 grams of carbs a day to manage my diabetes. The same happened here in Australia. When I was first diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, I was sent to a certified diabetes educator and I was given lots of pamphlets on the diet that I should now be eating as a diabetic. I put that diet into a food tracking application and it was over 300 grams of sugar and starch. This for a person for whom the only differential diagnosis they had for me was that I could not safely metabolize large amounts of carbohydrates. Yep, 300 grams of carbohydrates to manage my diabetes. Which now just totally overwhelms me because I live on about 15 to 20 grams of carbs a day and I don't need insulin. So I've had this trip before going off my insulin, but I didn't have any support. And I was uh, really isolative. I live in a rural town uh, in the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, and it was an eight-hour trip for me to see my doctor. And I eventually just succumbed to their suggestions of doing a Canadian food guide diet for diabetics. So I was put on insulin again because, of course, my blood sugars were coming in at 22 and 27 and my A1C was 15 and I didn't feel good and I was getting really really overweight I got up to 253 pounds which was pretty overwhelming <laughs> I couldn't participate and do a lot of activities and I run a very busy bed and breakfast and I could hardly do my job due to my Wait. Glenda spends her winters in Arizona. In March of 2017, she made an appointment with a bariatric surgeon there. Luckily for her, this surgeon was hip to the ketogenic diet. And I had done a lot of reading, and I'd seen that people who had bariatric surgery often had a drop in their A1C and managed their diabetes better. And um, I had kind of gone back on a low carb program, and I got down to about approximately maybe around 190 pounds, but I was still on tons of insulin, industrial doses of insulin. And I was waking up in the morning to a blood sugar of 15. I think I was probably going into hypoglycemic reaction in the middle of the night because uh, I was having these big bounce rounds. I go from three to 15. And they just kept telling me to keep injecting more long-acting insulin until I woke up with a blood sugar, a fasting blood sugar of 5.5. I followed that, and I did it, and I got sicker and sicker. Well, the doctor in Arizona, I'm not sure I should mention his name, but he said to me, get off that flipping insulin now and start a ketogenic diet. He said, you're going to be really sick if you keep on this uh carb program and keep on this insulin and then he said to me can I send you for an assessment to cardiologist and I said sure she went to the cardiologist and a week later got her test results back and they showed that she had some blockage in her heart and I wasn't surprised being a diabetic for 23 years and having this terrible weight problem and I at that time I wasn't clear on how magical the ketogenic diet was and I was pretty scared thinking you know I found this doctor from reading lots of stuff online and lots of podcasts and he came highly recommended 
do I believe him? Do I buy into this? I'm just as isolated as I was at home. And he said to me, you don't need bariatric surgery. He said, I don't even do it anymore. He said, my whole clinic is on a ketogenic diet. I don't have to do bariatric surgery anymore. I was like blown away, but I was going back to Canada in about three weeks. So I was pretty scared thinking, okay, I've got to put my trust someplace because I wasn't doing well. And I think I was taking almost 200 units of insulin a day. So she went home with the results of her echocardiogram, her stress test, and the CAT scan, and showed the results to her doctor. And I showed it to my doctor, and within a week, they did an angiogram. I was totally blown away. I had 100% blockage in my right artery, and uh, about 80% in my left, and my other arteries were all around 70. The funny thing is, Glenda was blocked, but she had no symptoms. I knew there was some because years ago I'd gone for a CAC score, but it wasn't a worry. It was stable. It was nothing. The cardiologist didn't even want to see me. So I think my plaque grew really fast from being on the high-carb diet and from being on the insulin. About four years earlier, Glenda was involved in a major car accident and she had trouble sleeping and was in a lot of pain because of it. And um, the cardiologist said that contributed to the growth of my plaque as well, the high stress and the not sleeping, the diabetic numbers, uh, eating high carbs. I was told I had to have a quadruple bypass surgery. Totally blew me away. And uh, I knew enough not to tell them I was on a ketogenic program because I knew they'd blame my three weeks on a ketogenic program on my plaque, but underneath my plaque had been growing for 68 years, so I just kept it quiet. This is sort of the opposite of what should have happened. She felt she had to keep quiet about the very therapy that worked and submit to the therapies that don't. So on May 24th, she had open-heart surgery. And I wouldn't recommend that for anybody. I wished I knew 40 years ago, if I had known about eating ketogenically, I probably would have saved myself um, a lot of pain and heartache and uh, my family as well. So while I was going through the surgery, before I went, I had like five weeks before my surgery from the day I started ketogenic to the day of my surgery. I continued to do the ketogenic diet. And about a month before my surgery, I discovered Dr. Fung. So I started doing research. And I thought, wow, he's right on with what he's saying. How come I never put this together before? I didn't really get it. So after discovering Dr. Fung, Glenda started to do some intermittent fasting. And I started dropping a lot of weight. But my blood sugars were like... from 13 down to like seven and eight. And I wasn't using any insulin and I wasn't using any metformin and I was off my blood pressure drugs. And I was like totally blown away. But anybody I talked to in the medical field, well, you can't fast. You're diabetic. You can't fast. And I was thinking, geez, I feel really good when I'm fasting. Why can't I fast? 
if you try not to eat because you want to lose weight or if you try not to eat fasting for uh, control of your blood sugars, it's like, no, you shouldn't do that. You should instead take all this insulin rather than uh, utilize a completely natural uh, method of lowering your blood sugars, which is not eat for a period of time. If you don't eat, your blood sugars will come down. That's pretty obvious. If you continue to not eat, you're going to lose weight. As you lose weight, your diabetes is going to get better. So clearly this is going to work. And you have all these people who are trying to scare you out of doing what will work. Nobody actually gets on us because they think it won't work. Nobody ever says, well, if you don't eat, you'll actually gain weight. It's like it's impossible. That's really just impossible. You can't gain weight if you're not eating. Uh, so they all acknowledge that fasting actually works. But what they try to do is scare people by saying, well, it's really, really unhealthy for you. It's like, well, but where is the evidence behind that? Where is the scientific paper that says not eating for a period of time is really, really harmful? In fact, every paper that's come out shows that fasting is a reasonable option for weight loss. In some studies, it does a bit better than uh, calorie restriction. In some studies, it does about the same as calorie restriction. But that's not the point. The point is that in none of these studies has there been any real concern about uh, safety. If you're on medications, of course, if you're on insulin, then of course you do have to work with your doctor because if you don't eat, you can't take the same dose of the insulin. If you, your blood sugars could go down very far. But that applies whether you're fasting or you're just changing your diet because if you change your diet, your blood sugars could fall and you could also, uh, be in real danger. So anytime you're taking medication, you have to talk to your doctor. Unfortunately, the doctors are not the most supportive of uh, dietary strategies and most of the reason is because they don't know anything about it they uh, figure that oh uh, they think that they're such experts especially the diabetes specialists they think they're such experts that they, if they haven't heard of it then it must be some kind of quackery and that's their sort of default um, position so that's why they're not supportive of any of these um, sort of uh, things and then at the university of course they don't tolerate any of this they're busy telling each other that they're really really smart and they're doing all the studies and um, in the meantime their patients keep getting worse and worse so this is the, the important thing because it's very very hard for patients to get out there and sort of swim against the current because you've got all this uh, information all these people telling you that it's very very harmful it's very dangerous and pretty soon you're going to stop and that's one of our number one tips actually uh, for intermittent fasting is that if you don't know if people are going to be supportive don't tell anybody because they're just going to try and tell you not to do it. Whereas you have to give it a fair shot. If, if you give it a fair shot and you do very poorly, yeah, sure, of course you can stop it. You can stop it at any time. If you're fasting and you're not feeling well, then you can stop it. You don't have to continue. And that's the, that's the, uh, that's an important message because we have people who, who go for long fast and, and they really feel unwell. And they'll still try and go through. You don't have to. You can stop, get some advice from somebody, and then uh, keep going on. One of the 
encouraging things is that we are seeing a lot more uh, physicians who are interested in dietary methods of change. Ketogenic diets are very popular, and there's a lot of interest in learning about intermittent fasting. And that's, uh, of course, going to hopefully translate into more support uh, for the uh, patients. So I just kind of learned not to say anything because. I was feeling so good, and I knew this surgery was really going to knock me on my butt, and I wasn't going to be able to walk or do anything. So I thought the more I could lose prior to my surgery, the better off I would be recovering from surgery. And then I saw an advertising about going on the long-distance IDM program, and I thought, well, I've got to do this. Like This is pretty drastic in my life now. I've got to spend some time with someone who knows what they're doing. I've got to get some coaching because I'm not going to get it from anybody locally. And so I joined the IDM program. And I think I started my first interviews with Megan. She knew of me, and but we started doing our meetings on Zoom. I believe in my head I remember July the 10th. Glenda joined the Intensive Dietary Management Program with the intention of being able to achieve a long fast. And that is Megan Ramos, Director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. So Glenda had had a lot of experience doing these shorter periods of intermittent fasting, so two days, three days, four days, but she really wanted to learn how to do an extended fast. So I often talk about fasting being like a muscle. Uh, So if you've never worked out before, uh, your muscles are going to be generally weak and fatigued. So you can't jump in and do the same workout that a bodybuilder would do who for the last 10 years has worked out every day of the week. So you have to start off with realistic expectations. Glenda, she understood this whole fact that fasting was like a muscle and she needed to build it up in order to be able to do long fasts, but she just wasn't sure how to get there. So I can relate to this with my own physical journey with weight training. So I would go to the gym and I would take gym classes and I would work out on my own. But I had different, I had limitations. I had issues with my hip, I had issues with my shoulder and my wrist and my ankle, and I wasn't quite sure how to advance beyond what I could do on my own. So I sought out the help of, of a couple personal trainers and a chiropractor to help guide me. And now things that were challenging to me before in the gym are now very easy and I'm continuing to make progress. So this is very similar to fasting. So Glenda had tried doing all these shorter periods of fasting, but she needed help bypassing some of her own personal issues uh, with her health in order to being able to achieve this long fast that she hoped to achieve. So are longer fasts necessary, first and foremost? Um, Some cases, yes. Some cases, they're definitely necessary. Most of the time, they're not, though. People can get really great progress with intermittent fasting, 24, 36, 42 hours, doing it very consistently. So three times a week, week in and week out, and following a low-carbohydrate or ketogenic diet a good 90% of the time on their eating days, they can get great results in the long term. But for some people, they really do need 
to do longer fast. Uh, and if one of those reasons why someone would need to do longer fast would be someone like Glenda. Glenda has chronically dieted her whole life and her metabolic rate has suffered immensely from low calorie diets, these calorie restricted diets for decades. So Glenda had a very poor metabolic rate. So when Glenda was fasting, she wasn't burning too much body fat because her body learned to sustain function at a very low caloric rate. So when she was fasting, she didn't need to extract that much energy from fat stores. So I was about six weeks post-surgery and I had been in the hospital only four days for the surgery. That's all they keep you nowadays. And the food they served me was fruit cups, cups of rice in these little pudding packages and toast with honey and jam. It was non-sugar jam, but it was still laden with carbs and big mounds of potatoes and hardly any meat. So for the four days I was in the hospital, I didn't eat. And I felt okay not eating. I drank a lot of water and I didn't tell them I was fasting. Only my husband and I knew that I was purposely doing this. But also the food was so gross. And I thought if I go back to eating all this food, I'm not going to recover. And I'm on my own, so I'm just going to stay the course. She said to the nurse, hey, I'd like some more protein, and maybe some more veg. And they said, they said, well, it's too late to order that now. Like no diabetics eat like that. This is the best diabetics eat is what we give you. And I said, no, I, I don't eat this stuff. And they said, look how good your blood sugars are. You have the best blood sugars on the whole unit. Because I guess when you have that traumatic surgery, your body goes into fight or flight. And everybody around me had a blood sugar of 25. And mine was 12. I was horrified because <laughs> I had been so good. But they said I had the best blood sugar on the unit. So Glenda went home and she continued her ketogenic eating. And everybody around her was still upset. I continued to lose weight and everybody was pretty upset about that. The people around me, like home care, was coming to change my dressing every day. And... Um, I was happy I was losing weight. I was still like 180 pounds and overweight for my size. And I was doing some intermittent fasting and believing I was healing myself. So she started working with Megan and doing more intermittent fasting and the ketogenic program. And I started to feel pretty safe to do that. She was very knowledgeable. So she said to me, we're just, I was listening to all these people fasting for three to five days, and I really pushed to do that. I felt for the first time in my life, I had control over my eating. And she said, there's no way I could do extended fast till September. I had to recover, continue doing what I'm doing, but we still met every week. And she was really good. She understood the dynamics physically and emotionally. So when I 
got Megan's permission <laughs> in September to start doing some extended pass. It got even better. Glenda had some scars from her surgery. She was not all that happy about it. They didn't look very good. But as she said, she's 68. She figured, ah, at least I'm alive. But then something interesting happened. But as I was doing extended fasting and dropping weight, and I think reaching autophagy, my scars are great. <laughs> you can hardly see them. And how much weight have you lost, Glenda? I've lost, since I started working with Megan, another 45 to 50 pounds. I've never been this low in my life. It's really hard to think ill of all those people who wagged their finger at you, told you to stop cutting carbs, told you to stop fasting, that they had some kind of malicious motive. So why do people bully others so badly when it comes to health and weight loss? Here's Megan again. Bullying is tough. Uh, doesn't seem to matter what we do in our life. When I was younger, I was very skinny. People chronically told me I had to gain weight and that I didn't look good. And then in my mid-20s when I gained weight, people told me I needed to lose weight because I didn't look good. As I gained weight, people became concerned that I gained weight. As I lost weight, people were concerned that I was losing weight. The bottom line is you really can't please anyone. Our family, uh, they're the ones who are the most critical of us because they love us the most and, and they just want us to be the best versions of ourselves. But the, it's hard for them to keep what you're doing in perspective. It is, it is really tough. I, I've learned this with my family. It, it's always a lose-lose situation, but they mean well. And I think Glenda's family and friends and everyone throughout her life has always meant well. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's always a lose-lose situation. And um, thinking about my journey, going through my journey with weight gain and weight loss and all of the constant criticism my whole life about my body, I've made me really reflect on how I was towards my loved ones when it came to giving them advice and criticism and feedback. And I realized I did the same thing to them that they did to me. So I had to take a real good hard look in the mirror and think about, I know what I'm doing is best for me. And I've got to realize what they're doing is what's best for them. And I, I need to back off of them and let them go through their own journey. So the number one rule of fasting club, as Jason Fung likes to say, is don't tell anyone uh, that you're fasting. That's hard to do sometimes. Uh, so <laughs> I, um, I got creative when I first started uh, fasting and going through this, this way of eating, starting to eat high fat with my friends and family. Uh, the first time I went out with a group of friends and they saw me and they noticed that I lost weight, the reaction initially was very positive. And then I told them what I was doing and all of a sudden they thought I was trying to commit suicide slowly and then all of a sudden I looked horrible too, even though at the start of our time together I was looking great. So I learned after that experience that I can't tell people that I'm fasting. 
And it's a shame. You want to be able to share with your friends and your family and your physicians and everyone else that you're you're fasting and you're doing this cool new thing and you're getting results. But people just don't understand. I started telling people that I was doing a detox, a colon cleanse, a detox, all these widely accepted explanations as to why I'm only drinking water with lemon or why I'm only drinking cream tea or why I'm drinking soup broth and the semantics of it changing it from fasting and time-restricted eating changing that to tea talks and colon cleanse and I got overwhelming positive response from my peers and my family members and once I told them that I was doing something that they accept All of a sudden, I was looking great. I wasn't looking horrendous. Glenda, when you think back to all the bad advice and the bullying and the uh, family members who tried to steer you away from the thing that ultimately saved your life, how does it make you feel? Well, it really makes me angry. It makes me angry because... um, I'm a trained registered psychiatric nurse and I worked in the field of mental health with people with problems for 33 years. And um, I know I helped a lot of people because of the feedback I got and my reputation. And I was always a very good caregiver. I always kept myself up to date on doing research on mental health problems and different drugs that were used in psychiatry. And I feel like I gave the best of myself to my profession. And I worked a lot, very close with all the doctors in my community and the surrounding communities. I have a lot of respect for them. And I really liked the doctors that I worked with. But then I saw how some of them really let me down by their lack of education and awareness and their lack of following up when patients are saying, hey, a low-carb diet really helped me. And I was left in the dust. And although I was a real strong person helping other people and my community, I wasn't able to stay on a low-carb program without support of the doctors around me because that's who I depended on. And that was my mindset. That was my upbringing and my training. And my profession was doctors walked by God, and I followed what they said. So I feel kind of mad at myself, too, because I wouldn't do that with other people, but I, I did it with myself. And for the first time in her life, Glenda feels good. She's 10 pounds from her goal weight. Her diabetes is in remission and she continues to do the ketogenic diet and fasting. I've recovered from my heart surgery pretty good, and I've continued to meet with Megan and the long-distance program, and I feel like I'm really getting to know my body and how keto works and how intermittent fasting works and extended fasting works, and I have a lot of trust in where I'm going to end up and how I'm going to be, and how I'm going to get there. What advice do you have for the millions of people out there who are struggling? They found something that works, 
and they just can't get the support they need? Well, my son is a good example. He's 39 years old. He doesn't have a weight problem or a diabetic problem. But I'm educating him lots, and he's telling his doctor this stuff. And uh, he's learning to speak up for himself through me. So I tell him, don't accept medical advice without doing your own research. And I tell people that you have to do your own research. And I actually tell my friends uh, not to use the word keto if they're talking to their doctor, their family, because there's a lot of myths out there. Like 20 years ago, there was a lot of myths about low carb, and now I find it's about keto. But I tell people to say, uh, you're not eating anything white or anything processed, anything in a package. But don't use the terminology keto because it'll bite you. I also tell people that when your doctor prescribes a medication, because I worked in the medical field and I trusted these doctors, and I didn't have access to the internet back then, I just took the medication. You know, I believed them. So I tell people now, don't take any medication until you research it yourself and find out if that's really what you need because half the stuff I was on, I didn't need. I don't, I, I've had been treated for a seasonal affective disorder, which is a type of depression that I've got in winter. And I've been on antidepressants for about 30 years, just in the winter time. I didn't need any this winter. I don't have depression. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? That is wonderful. I just feel that you saw how emotional I got when I first said it, but they saved my life. The heart surgery didn't save my life. It really impaired me. If I'd found keto five years ago, I probably could have reduced my plaque, I believe. Glenda, you are delightful. Thank you for sharing. And congratulations. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.